Our passage this morning is 1 Kings 17. We're going to read the entire chapter. If you have your Bibles, I certainly invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings 17. The text is printed for you on the next page in your bulletins. Uh, this is a, uh, a little bit of a longer reading. We'll, we'll remain standing to, uh, to, to honor the one who speaks, uh, who, who is Lord uh, through his word. But if you are unable, by, by all means, uh, feel free to sit during the reading. So again, our reading is uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Kerith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. We have just begun a a new sermon series that we are are calling the Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha. If if any of you happen to grow up in the church and you went to Sunday school as children and you heard the great stories of the Bible, then some of these stories 
uh, might resonate with you. You might remember bits and pieces, especially of the great miracles of Elijah. Uh, If you had a Mount Rushmore of Old Testament figures, I think you'd make the case that Elijah would be on Mount Rushmore. Uh, he's, He's brought up again by the later prophets, and then in the New Testament, Elijah plays a prominent role. But I'm still guessing, even if if some of us, not all of us, but some of us have the Sunday school stories, we're familiar with the name of Elijah, but how many of us know what to do with Elijah? Where does he fit in redemptive history? What does Elijah have to do with, with me? What does he have to do with the story of God redeeming a people for himself and redeeming the world? I think that's a good question. Last week was our first Sunday in this series, and, and we just set everything up. We, we set up the dark days of Israel, and then out of nowhere, Elijah comes on the scene. Let me just give you a, a brief synopsis, right? You have the people of God, Israel, but they are divided into two nations. For about 200 years, these two nations exist side by side. You have the kingdom of Judah in the south. The kings there are the descendants of David. It's for that reason that there's more stability in the south. It takes a lot longer for Judah to fall apart, though, of course, they too fall apart. But from the very beginning, in the northern kingdom of Israel, there is no stability. It's just this downward trajectory of idolatry and wickedness, and it has culminated in the worst king the people have yet to have, who is King Ahab. He is the worst. He's married to Jezebel. Her name has the word Baal in it. Um, Jezebel is a word in our English dictionaries. It's not a nice word. It means a woman who is scheming and wicked and deceitful. Ahab and Jezebel aren't aren't just uh, tolerating uh, Baal worship in Israel. They are into it. They are leading Israel into Baal worship. And so it's taken about three generations for the people of the Lord to become the people of Baal. And out of nowhere, completely uninvited, Elijah, whose name means my God is the Lord, strolls into the courts of Ahab and he pronounces judgment as God's prophet. And now we're set up for this conflict. This is a war. This is the kingdom of God declaring war on the kingdom of Satan. This is the story of the living God calling his wayward people to account for all of this sin and idolatry that absolutely permeates the land. But this is also, and I emphasized this last week, this is also very much the grace of God breaking into a people who are lost and so bent on their own destruction. I don't know where this idea or quote originated. It's hard to track down, but I'm sure most of us have heard it, where the opposite of love is not hate, right? The opposite of love is indifference, And you certainly could say that God is not indifferent towards his people. He wants to shake them out of their sin by sending this prophet Elijah. God intervenes through Elijah. He announces judgment of drought. Of course, what follows drought is always famine. And then he leaves Israel and he heads out into the wilderness. But here's how I want to frame this morning, which I think is is, is an important thing to grasp at the beginning. This story of 1 Kings 17, this is not the story of Elijah on the run. This is not the story of of the prophet on the run. Instead, this whole chapter is about God's word on the move. Okay, it's about God's word that's on the move. There won't be any applications this morning of be like Elijah because I don't think that 1 Kings 17 is really about Elijah's courage in the face of persecution. I think it's probably there, but that's not the point of the chapter. Instead, it's about who Elijah is. 
what Elijah represents. And Elijah represents, in his office as a prophet, he represents the presence of God as the bearer of God's word, and he has just left the building. That's the point. God has left the building in Israel. 1 Kings 17 is about God's word, which is living and active, a word that still is those things. And so we'll look at this word in two, two parts this morning as we work through this chapter. First, Elijah, of course, has this word of judgment. That's kind of the point. He pronounces this judgment of drought. But then we also see that wherever Elijah goes, he brings life. So we also see this life-giving, powerful word. All right, word of judgment, a word of life-giving power. Let's unpack the word of judgment. Again, we established last week that, that Israel is a place of spiritual bankruptcy. It's a place of spiritual darkness. Israel had gone in just a few generations from a post-faithful society. I think it's a good way to say it. You know, some golden calf shrines here and there. They've gone from post-faithful to full-on Baal worshiping. And then out of nowhere, Elijah the prophet shows up. Now, Baal's going to keep showing up in the next couple of chapters. And so I think it's worth taking a minute to, to understand what it meant to follow Baal in this time and, and, and what it means for Elijah to speak in against Baal. Baal was the ancient Canaanite god of fertility. He was known as the rider of the storms. So when it thundered in the sky, that was Baal's voice speaking to the creation. Because this is the fertility God, this is the God that we are dependent upon for food, right, in that culture. If you're an agrarian society, and this is the God that provides the rains and provides the fertility of the soil, then this is the God that we need to be worshiping. This is for their food, their livelihoods, their, their nourishing. It was very much a nature religion. They're, they're very close to the land so they, that they can appeal to God. And, and we can see nature religion all around us today, can't we? There was a famous celebrity that posted a video in front of some pretty terrifying uh, muddy uh, mudslides this past week. And she looked so earnestly into her camera phone and she said, we need to be nicer to Mother Nature because she is not happy with us. Well, that's Baalism. That's Baalism, but with no theology, no mythology. But behind Baal, there is plenty of mythology. Uh, the story of Baal, this fertility god, was that, that you know, Eons ago, Baal is in this battle with the, the even more powerful Canaanite god, Mot. And Mot is the god of death. And so, of course, death beat Baal. Baal goes to the underworld where all the, the dead gods are. But the thing is, is that Baal had this lady friend god named Anath. And Anath breaks into the underworld prison and she, she resurrects Baal. And they have sexual relations. And from those sexual relations, fertility and fruit is brought back upon the land. The rains come again, the earth produces fruit, and all of creation lives in the cycle of Baal, who dies and then is brought back to life. Worshippers of Baal have a whole religious system to affect the gods. Uh, this is where we talk about temple prostitution. The idea is you would engage the services of the temple, and that would create fruitfulness in the divine world, which would then pour back out into creation. Now, why did I do this, this deep dive into the story of Baal? It's because Elijah goes into Ahab, and what does he say? No more rain. No more rain. You all are spending your lives trying to appease this non-God Baal. But let me tell you, the Lord, uh, he's going to take away the rain because he's the one who's sovereign and in control. There is no storm God, there is a living God, and he is sovereign over all. 
It's the Lord who provides the rain, and it's the Lord who takes it away. And so he takes his prophet out of the land. God withdraws his provision for Israel, and yet he sends Elijah into the wilderness, which, which speaks to us as, so, as someplace that's it's barren. Life is, is hard in the wilderness. And so Elijah is set up by this creek, just a little seasonal creek where rainwater would come into that creek. And, and so he's drinking the, the rainwater. And then we have this, this crazy story of ravens twice a day delivering bread and meat, right? Meat is always a luxury in the world. And these ravens are bringing meat to Elijah. Israel has nothing. This prophet has ravens as this divine DoorDash service bringing bread and meat twice a day. That's how in control the Lord is of his creation. The creek dries up because, of course, the rain goes away, and the Lord says, that's all right. There's, there's a new plan. I'm going to send you into Zarephath and Sidon. By the way, this is Jezebel's dad's land. It's the heart of Canaanite territory. And he says, a widow will now provide for you. Now, we hear widow, and we think a widow can be rich, a widow can be poor, a widow can be anywhere in between. We don't really know the financial status of a widow in 2023. Elijah hears the word widow, and he says, can I just keep the ravens? What is she going to provide for me? But the Lord will continue to provide for his prophet, even as Israel is left with drought and famine. And the point of all of this, again, it's not that Elijah is on the run, but the point that God has withdrawn his word from Israel and he is bringing it elsewhere. Wherever Elijah goes, life just keeps breaking out. Whether he's feeding the widow miraculously or raising her son from the dead, the word of God goes with Elijah and it continues to bring power and life. And so the point is that in Israel, where you would expect God's word of power and life to exist, it has been taken and is removed. Now, there are a couple of things to consider here about this word of judgment that Elijah brings. And the first is a really fascinating point. It's that Elijah not only pronounces judgment, but he prays for it. And we get this in the New Testament. In James 5.17, James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Do you hear how that's fascinating? Elijah is saying, Lord, bring drought into this land. Why are you not bringing drought? We need you to bring drought. Why is Elijah doing this? It doesn't sound nice, does it? It doesn't sound very Christ-like to be praying for drought amidst your own people. What is Elijah doing? Remember who he is, his status. He's a prophet. That means that he is a covenant attorney. Uh, think of a city district attorney, right? He has the accused and, and, and the rap sheet in front of him, and he then goes to the law, or she goes to the law as the district attorney, seeking to apply the law to this, to this accused in order to indict and bring charges. That is exactly what Elijah is doing. So he goes to the law, Deuteronomy 11. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Uh-oh. Because then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So here's the existential crisis of Elijah. He sees the idolatry. He sees Israel serving other gods, but he does not see the anger of God. Because the rain is still falling, and the earth is still fruitful, and so he is praying God, where is your anger? Why are you not ceasing the rains? Why are you not ceasing the fruit? 
Elijah prays, God, according to your word, do what is just. Elijah sees Israel and her idolatry and wickedness, and he is angry. He hurts. He is grieving. He is lamenting. God, would you come into this broken system as you have promised to do? Now, what does this mean for us? 2023 as Christians, what does this mean for us? A couple of things. The first one is, do we grieve the sins of our land? Do we lament the sins of our culture? It's not a popular thing to do. It's much easier to not be that kind of Christian, but, but we are to hate sin. We are to be wearied of sin. We are to look at the greed and, and be weary of it. We are to look at the pornification of our culture and we are to be sad and angry over it. The sexualization of everything, including our children. We're to think of the least among us, whether it be the, the infant in the womb or the sick or the elderly, and we just say, well, go ahead and kill them off, and we are to be angry at that. We're to look at the racism and prejudice and all of the baggage that we're still holding, and we're to be angry at that. We're to look at the anger and the slander and the malice and all of the idolatry that surrounds us and, and all of the celebration of what is wicked and the hatred of what is righteous, and we are to lament. God, do you see this? But we're also not Elijah. We have no covenant to prosecute our neighbors with. We are not a covenant nation of God. We have no divine district attorneys. We live in the age of the gospel, which is expanding to all nations, calling all people of every tongue, tribe, and nation to the Lord. And so we have this very difficult task of lamenting the sin and proclaiming a crucified and risen Lord. And we do that dance by the Spirit, according to his word. But while we have no covenant to prosecute or indict, others with, we still cry out for justice. We still pray, God, your, your kingdom would come and your will would be done because what is justice but God addressing what is disordered and broken and restoring it. I know you've heard me say this before if you've been around for any time at all. The only being in the universe not allowed to be upset and judge is God. The rest of us are told to be upset and angry and judge. We're just told to be angry at particular things. But don't we long for God to bring justice in his perfect anger, his perfect justice? Lord, would your kingdom come and put an end to the broken kingdoms of this world? So that's the first application. Is it, in many ways, we're to be like Elijah, but then there are, there are profound differences. We are not covenant attorneys like Elijah is. And in fact, we are, we are gospel proclaimers, even as we lament and long for God to make all things new. That's the first way to think about the judgment the, the word of judgment here. The second is that we have the covenant curse of drought, right? If you are unfaithful, I'm going to bring drought. So we're seeing that covenant curse, that sanction in play here. But we also see maybe a worse judgment, which is that God withdraws his word, which is the point. No one had been listening anyway, but you know, he, he takes his prophet and in effect he removes his word. One commentator says, God goes silent when we stop listening to his word. And so this leaves us asking, what does it look like for God to remove his word? And we have plenty of examples in the Bible. I think over, over church history, we have so many examples that we can look back on and we can read God's providence back through history. Um, we can think of the, some of the great Christian epicenters on the globe. We can think of Constantinople, 
uh, which is now Istanbul. I mean, Constantinople was one of the great cultural hubs of Christianity. Today, it is a city of 16 million people, about 100,000 Christians. We can go across Europe and we can see grand cathedrals, uh, which are just history lessons, or we can see the less grand cathedrals, which according to kind of our American perspective are plenty grand enough, and they're just being torn down to build condos and shopping centers. And maybe this is a phenomenon, I think it is, uh, only gaining steam in our own country. What does it look like for God to remove his word here? And we can download Bible apps on our phones in our pockets. Uh, we can go to Amazon. They sell something like 30,000 different Bibles on Amazon. And so what does it mean for God to remove his word? And I think it means we stop listening. Or we listen selectively. We are the masters of the word and the word no longer is a master of us. Instead of sitting under the word, always expecting to be judged, to be killed by the word, and then to be resurrected by the word and the hope of the gospel, um, we just come to dominate it and we stand over it. I love this hard word from Eugene Peterson. He says, having and defending and celebrating the Bible, instead of receiving, submitting to, and praying the Bible, masks an enormous amount of non-reading. I think Elijah's story should give us pause. Am I listening? Am I being shaped by the word or am I coming to the word to shape it according to my will? And the sobering thing, which is also comforting, and we're going to keep talking through the rest of this time together under, under 1 Kings 17, the comforting thing is that God didn't remove his word and then shut it up in the heavens. Is that God says, you've stopped listening, so I'm going to take it somewhere where it will be heard. And that too is a story of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. And this is what we see in our second point. So the word is a word of judgment, but the word is also a word of life-giving power. The word is on the move. I think this is something similar to this the great passage in 2 Timothy where, where Paul says, you know, I am bound in chains as a criminal, but the word cannot be bound. Don't feel too bad for me because I can't preach because God's going to take that word elsewhere. He doesn't need me. God can take his word however he does it. Israel has rejected the word, but, but, but God's not done working. And so the word is taken away from Israel. Most of 1 Kings 17 is the journey of God's word accomplishing its purposes. Elijah is sent to the wilderness. God is with him. God brings life to the barren desert. God then sends Elijah to Zarephath. Again, this is the capital of Baal worship. Dale Ralph Davis calls it Baalsville in Gentile land. That is where Elijah has gone. So to illustrate this, if you replace Baal worship with Islam, Elijah would be sent to a widow in Saudi Arabia. Or if you replaced it with Hinduism, Elijah would be sent to a widow in India. He is going into the heart of Baal country. And in 1710, he comes to Zarephath upon this widow gathering sticks. And he asks for water and some bread. And she says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I have a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. I'm now preparing to, to, some sticks to basically make a fire, cook my last batch of bread, and then me and my son are going to go die. She's not a believer in the Lord yet. Right now, she's just an ordinary Gentile, Baal-worshipping widow. But Baal has let her down. And the God of Israel, listen, Elijah, he may be real, but that doesn't mean much for me because I'm dying. And now Elijah, who we've, we've only met as a prophet of judgment, he now comes with a prophet of good news and comfort in verse 13. Do not fear. 
He says, make me a cake first and then make a cake for you and your son. And do this because according to God's word, the flour will not be spent and the jug of oil will not run empty. And this woman who is absolutely at the end of her rope responds in faith to Elijah and trusts in him and the God he represents. And every day she would open up the cabinet and there would be a little bit more flour and a little bit more oil to keep making bread. But then the chapter ends with another crisis, right? They have food and all of a sudden her son becomes ill and he dies. And then we have two things to note. She blames his death on her son. Elijah, did you just come to reveal my sin and then kill my son because of that? She blames his death on her sin. Now the first thing is that's not correct. That's not right. But notice this point. She is more sensitive to her sin than just about anyone in Israel. Ahab is not about to ask as all of his people are are, are dying through this famine. Oh no, is this because of my sin? And for Ahab, you could say it was because of Ahab's sin that his people were dying. But no, the, the, the widow has not caused her to lose her son, but the widow still has the sensitivity to her own sin. And then Elijah steps in and he cries out to God. Again, something in Israel they've ceased to do long ago. Elijah takes her son, he goes upstairs, and he stretches himself on top of the son, and he cries out, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the child is revived. Elijah is one of the few people who is listening to God, and so then when Elijah then steps in on behalf of the dead son, what does the Lord do for Elijah? He listens to the voice of Elijah. I mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, right? This is all about God's word. Where is God deploying his life-giving word? The journey of the word is everything. It leaves Israel. It goes to the wilderness. It then moves from the wilderness to the heart of pagan Canaanite territory. And then it leaves there for the place that you would think of all places, the word has no power, which is the place of the dead. Because remember, Elijah is not just in Baal country. He's in Moat country the God of the dead. And even here, the Lord is powerful and has authority over death. This is the first resurrection in Scripture. Uh, And and again, it's it's speaking to this life-giving word that, that God utilizes, but I want us to just try to imagine the drama of this story. And maybe if you're hearing it for the first time as an Israelite, right? Of course God has authority over creation. Of course God has authority over the wilderness. Of course God has authority in in Gentile pagan land. And yet it's one thing for God to heal somebody on the doorstep of death. But you're not telling me God has authority over the dead. And Elijah says, yeah, even the dead. God's life-giving word can even raise the dead. Journey of Elijah is the story of how far the Lord goes to bring life by his word. That God is not constrained by geographical boundaries. Uh, Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. Um, The opposite, of course, is not true. The powers of hell are no match for our God. He has authority over life and death itself. It's a story of how far God would go in not just sending one who would bear his word, but of course the gospel of Elijah is also about the greater prophet to come, Jesus, who is the very word of God. Just as Elijah would be sent to the wilderness, so Jesus would be sent to the wilderness, our champion, defeating the tempter by clinging to what? The word. 
Just as Elijah would journey into spiritually dark Zarephath to rescue a widow, so Jesus would, would head into the darkness of spiritual warfare, casting out demons, doing battle with the kingdom of hell in order to restore men and women who are lost in bondage in order to set them free. Elijah, by God's power, would bring this boy back to life from death. Jesus is the boy. Jesus is the son who went into death and came out the other side, holding in his hands the keys of death and hell. Friends, this story is about the life-giving power of the word. And the thing is, is that story's not over. But it's still being told. It's, it's, it's still giving life even today. And, and I would suggest that it maybe doesn't feel like it, but even right now, we are living into this story, especially every Sunday. Every time we gather. Because the word preached is not just about learning and information transfer. It's about proclaiming the living God and beholding his work of transforming the wilderness, of ministering to widows, of raising the dead. It is a work that still consists of of our sins being confronted, of our fears being comforted, of our hunger being filled, and holding out resurrection life where there is only the power and darkness of death. The woman was forever changed when Elijah said, your son lives. Doesn't that kind of sound like an echo of the better story that is repeated year after year, day after day, that we are changed by the better report? Not that your son lives, but in light of the empty tomb, he is not here, he is risen. The son still lives. The word changes the woman and her response is that she believes Elijah is God's mouthpiece. I don't think she left that day a Baal worshiper, but a follower of the true and living God. And the thing is is that the word is still at work changing women and men to believe not only that the word is in the better prophet Jesus' mouth, but of course that he is the word of God himself. That's a word that brings comfort. That's a word that supplies hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word We thank you for your Holy Spirit who comes to make the the words on the page penetrate into our hearts and into our spirits. Lord, we uh, we especially cry out for you to do a work as, uh, as we come to parts of the Bible that feel so far removed from us. Yet as we presuppose every time we come to the text we've come to to know you better we've come to know our savior jesus better in a light of of what we understand about ourselves and lord we are people who are in need of your word a better word proclaimed of redemption and life and lord we're grateful that not only we we hear this word but then we turn now in in the service to to eat your word to receive it to feast upon it to see it to hold it Lord, we don't know how it all works, and yet we confess, Lord, would you do a work among us by the power of your word? We are a people surrounded by by a world of of death. In many ways, our our own bodies are constant reminders of, of that world, Lord, and so we pray that you would break into it now, and Lord, that you would build us up according to your word of life, your word of power, It takes dead, stony hearts and makes them fleshy and live again. Or would you do that work? Even here this morning among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.